Hello. Hello. I'm Grace. And I'm Madeline. And we are Dragon Babies. Dragon Babies. We reread our favorite YA and children's fantasy classics and discuss why they may be even better for adults. Yes. This week, The Phantom Tollbooth by Norton Juster, illustrated by Jules Pfeiffer. Tuck, 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 tuck. I was really excited about that one. I'm sorry I cut you off initially. (laughs) This was published in 1961 and is a beloved classic. I've wanted to cover it for a while, but I think I felt like it was for too young a reading audience or not fantastical enough, but... We bend the rules more and more as the podcast goes on in terms of what we're going to classify as appropriate coverage. And uh, sadly, Norton Jester passed away just a few weeks ago. So I wanted to record this in tribute to him because this book was incredibly important to me as a youngin and today. Yeah, I love this book. It was so good. We do thoroughly spoil every book we cover, so if you haven't read The Phantom Tollbooth before, I'd recommend that you check it out. It's very, very fun, and I would also implore you to get a physical copy because the illustrations are so magnificent and do so much for the story as a whole. Yeah, I listened to an audiobook. um, Which I told you not to do. I know, but I am addicted to uh, like playing a simple video game while I listen to uh, books or drawing or something like that. So that's a good addiction to have. Yeah, yeah, there are worse ones. Um, But it was fun uh, flipping through the book this morning and seeing the pictures and seeing how my own mental Mm. images um, either matched or didn't match with the artist's imagining. So that was, that was fun. You, you just hinted at this, but the ultimate spoiler of this episode is that Madeline actually hasn't read this book before. So womp, womp. it's going to be very interesting, I think, to get into each of our personal old and new impressions. Yes. But first, we're going to describe the cover of my childhood edition of The Phantom Tollbooth. I still have this one. Been holding on to it. It still has my earmarks from when I was a kid of the pages that I thought were the funniest. Um, it <laughs> I is... wondered about the earmarks. <laughs> yeah. Well, some of them I also pretend earmarked food. for pretend food. Yeah. Um, but this is the special 35th anniversary edition that was released in 1996. It has a really cute colorized picture of Milo and Talk nose to nose when they first meet. I love Talk. Talk looks very grumpy and Milo is very quizzical as he is throughout the book. This edition also has an introduction or an appreciation, as it says, by Maurice Sendak, which was really lovely, um, who was publishing around the same time initially as Norton Jester and knew him. And they're all from New York. um, Mm. The three of them, Jules Pfeiffer, Norton Jester, Maurice Sendak, Sendak. um, and talked about what a wild and wonderful time it was in children's publishing in the early 60s um, and difficult as well because children's publishing as a more heightened concept was really in its infancy. Um, The possibility to create slightly more challenging books like this one. Oh, and the other piece I love about this edition is the incredibly bright blue cover. (laughs) Um, This book is one that stood out to me immediately. Um, these illustrations, this style of kind of scratchy line work is one that I 
seriously utilized in developing my own artistic mm. approach. Um, it and it's of, super compelling to me. Absolutely. And it reminds me of um, the artist that did a lot of Rolf Dahl's books. In Quentin those. Blake. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. Um, which I also love. It reminded me of the uh, significant task that the illustrator of Alice, Alice in Wonderland, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, had in front of him, which was to come up with these concrete illustrations for abstract concepts and figures. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we'll talk more about this, but I think Jules Pfeiffer did an amazing job. Yay. <laughs> and now, plot summary by Madeline. All right. So... Our protagonist is the young Milo. We start out the book with him. Um, he, how old is he? He's around like 12, right? Um, or maybe a little younger. So Norton Juster purposely didn't say how old he was okay. so that he could be to a kind of every child. Broad, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I assumed that he was like, you know, between child and teen because I, you know, that yeah, is. Yeah, like nine to 12. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um and he is in a world quite similar to our reality, or perhaps our reality, uh, when the book starts. He is very bored. He doesn't care about school. He doesn't think he's learning anything interesting. Um, and uh, he just doesn't understand why he's being taught the things he is. He doesn't see value in that knowledge. Um, and uh, the book kicks off really fast, which I was into yeah because he literally it starts when he's like walking home and then he gets home there's a mysterious massive package um and uh, there's a map in it and a small toll booth um which i completely incorrectly visualized at first uh but then i remembered what a toll booth looks like And I think it's a little confusing because when you hear toll booth, you think of like a British style red exactly. Um, that's phone exactly booth. what I was thinking <laughs> yeah. of. Yeah, but it's actually the kind of booth that's on the highway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and there's a note attached to it that actually says, <laughs> "For Milo, who has plenty of time." Uh, and uh, so he goes to Dictionopolis, which is a location on the map that's included in this fantastical package. Um, he thinks this is a pretend game. Uh, and he, like, it's it's very, um, you know, kind of absurd and fantastical because, like, he starts in his room and there's, like, a little car and then suddenly um, he's driving along a road, mm-hmm. like, not in the apartment where he lives mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, he goes through a lot of different places in this book. So I'm just going to kind of run them down. Um, first he is in expectations, which is a place. Um, the whole world is called wisdom and, uh, he meets the, the weatherman, uh, W H E T H E R, um, who just like keeps talking. Uh, he explains he's not a weather as in sky weather man, but uh, yeah, I'm not going to be able to, eloquently convey but whether uh, as in something that may happen or not yeah um and he delighted me so again so he gets a special shout out yeah we're not not gonna mention everyone he meets right grace (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, then he meets the uh, watchdog, whose name is Talk in the doldrums, which is a colorless place where nothing ever happens. You're not allowed to think. Talk is in the doldrums because he's trying to make sure that the characters there don't waste time when that's, yes. in fact, all that they do. Exactly. Yeah. So it's not a good fit for him. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Nobody likes it. So happily, Talk um, comes with Milo on his journey. So they're both in the car. And uh, at first I was afraid of talk because he was like, rah, 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 it's so funny that you keep saying you're afraid of talk. Cause I found him so like cute and fun from the start. Maybe it's because I wasn't looking at the pictures. I've never read this book before. And he just showed up and the way the narrator um, did his voice was very, <laughs> which was really cute. Okay. And once they were in the car past the doldrums, then I immediately switched to being like, oh, talk is amazing. He can stay. He's not scary at all. Yeah. I love the <laughs> moment when he says, you know, he's like giving Milo advice and stuff. And then he just hops in the car and is like, do you mind if I join? I just love automobile rides. Yeah. yeah. So endearing. Immediately. I was like, oh, okay. He's a dog. <laughs> <laughs> um, Milo and Talk um, end up in Dictionopolis. It's one of two capital cities in the Kingdom of Wisdom, which is like divided. Um, the king in Dictionopolis is named King uh, Azaz, uh, and uh, there is a the other kingdom is called Digitopolis, and he goes there later. Um, but when they're in Dictionopolis, a plot significant occurrence is that. Um, Milo and Talk meet a spelling bee in the market, and uh, you think that the spelling bee is going to be the character who mm -hmm. comes with them, and then the humbug shows up and is <laughs> really blustery. And he's the sketchy one, right? Yeah, he shows up and his he's a humbug. Like that's mm -hmm. his personality, and then the spelling bee and the humbug literally get into fisticuffs yeah. and like a scuffle um, at the word market. Yes, and then a uh, officer who is twice as wide as he is tall, and the the actually illustrated him that way, which I yeah. loved. Um, so he's like a, a horizontal egg. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, the the police officer breaks up the fight, um, puts a, a judge wig on, like a British barrister's wig, because that way he can put them in prison. For six million years. Here's my Adventure Time corner of the episode. Um, if you're not familiar, Adventure Time is a children-slash-adult cartoon. Um, it's on Cartoon Network, creator Pendleton Ward. Check it out. It's one of my favorite shows of all time. I do think that Adventure Time is a linear descendant of uh, the phantom toll booth this book made me think of adventure time so much in the most delightful ways mm -hmm. and this was one instance where when the like ah, policeman shows up and he throws him in the dungeon for six million years um i feel like lemon grab actually says that like six million years yeah mm -hmm. <laughs> um, sorry everyone <laughs> when he says them to the dungeon like that's what like Millionaires dungeon. Yeah. Um, so that that made me smile and laugh. Um they, he puts them in prison. Milo and Talker in prison. They meet the witch, not a witch with a T, but a witch, 
uh, whose name is Faintly Macabre. Amazing. Which I love. That's like one of my favorite fantasy names. And the text keeps saying things like, she wasn't a very scary witch. Yeah. <laughs> Faintly Macabre. Um, it's great. And she used to be in charge of what's, which words should be used in wisdom. Um, and she tells the story about how the rulers, King Azaz, Azaz I'm sorry, um, and his brother, the Mathemagician. And I really <laughs> love that King Azaz has a name, like a, a, a king no, name. No, I know. He gets a proper name. And then the other one <laughs> I'm the mathematician. I know it sounds so goofy. Yeah, very funny. They had two adopted younger scissors whose sisters, not scissors, (laughs) whose names were R, Rhyme, and Reason. And they were like the kingdom mediators. They were really good at it. The brothers are always fighting. So they were helpful in. um, Because one loved words and one loved numbers. mm -hmm. Yeah. So they were helpful at creating balance. Um, until <laughs> once they made a decision that was uh, too rational for mm-hmm. the rulers to accept when they said that letters and numbers were equally important. Um, that's what Rhyme and Reason said. So the kings banished the princesses to the castle in the air. Um, and uh, yeah, that's that's where they are. And uh, then Milo and Tuck just leave the dungeon. Like They, they press just, a button. Yeah, they press a button and leave the dungeon after the witch says to them, like, uh, the policeman likes putting people in jail, but he doesn't keep track of you after that. Like, you could just leave now. Mm-hmm. Um, and later, then they go to the king's banquet because it's just, like, happening. The king's chancellors come and get them and bring them. And the policeman is there, and I think he says, like, oh, it's been six million yeah. years already. <laughs> just, like, keeps walking on. Um, um. Which, you know, seems like a good foundation for a justice system. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So then they have their spoken uh, food feast. Yes. And we'll, we can talk more about that in yeah, pretend we'll cover food. That later. Um, but also at the banquet, they start talking to uh, King Azaz about like, oh, let, we, we have to go rescue the princess. Oh, my God. The king's name. A to Z, A to Z. It's the whole alphabet. Oh, Azaz. And King Azaz also says, like, oh, there's something that I'm not going to tell you until after you rescue the princesses. Yeah. And they're like, okay, cool. Helpful. Um, and <laughs> the humbug basically just gets persuaded to be their guide because King Azaz compliments him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Uh, then they they're off. They go on the quest. Um, they meet a lot of people during the quest. Uh, one of note is Alec Bings, who is a little boy in the air. Alec, <laughs> Alec Bings. Um, and it, they talk about how in Alec's family, everyone is born with their head in the position that it will be in when they're done growing. And then instead of growing up, they grow down. And that way they always maintain the same perspective throughout their entire life. And there is a brilliant little breakdown of 
the value of changing your perspective um, and uh, like growth through that, which I've felt a very strong personal connection to, like I did with so many things in this book. I, I can't believe that Alec was written so many years before the birth of Twitter because he just felt like your average <laughs> Twitter troll. <laughs> It was so specific, uh, skewering, and it was something that didn't exist yet. That's true, yeah. Um, I guess, I mean, every man punditry has been in existence far before social media. That's true, yeah. Um, And uh, they also end up, um, there's this really cool little adventure where they end up uh, meeting... Chroma the Great, who's a conductor, and his orchestra, who makes all of the colors happen. Um, And there's a really cool scene where Milo watches him conduct. And then the next morning, Milo sneaks up to the podium and he conducts. um, And it turns into like the color out of space, the one that Nicolas Cage is in. Um, just don't like, recommend by the way, <laughs> it's not my favorite, um, adaptation, Lovecraft adaptation, but I do love Nicolas Cage. Um, and everything just goes bonkers. Like all the colors are messing up. Time is flying by because There's a whole like season. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because, um, Milo orchestra is just out of control. Yeah. Milo doesn't know what he's doing. Um, and it just so happens that then he figures out like he has to put his arms down for them to stop. Uh, and Chroma the Great hops back up. Yeah, no, then Milo just screams, wake up, it's sunrise. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the conductor was like, oh, thank happen. you, starting a bit late today. And then Milo and uh, the party keep going. Um, and uh, very totally few people... totally messing with the fabric of Yes! <laughs> so, like, they ate a week because of Milo's poor conducting. I liked that a lot. Uh, that scene... I found it so frightening when I was a kid. Oh, really yeah. Like no time being out of control. And that a, is scary. And from the start, Milo being like, I can do this myself. I was always sure. like, no. Like as a little kid being You're just like, a kid. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're um, going to get in trouble. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, then they meet um, the dodecahedron, who is a 12-sided creature, um, and he helps them get to Digitopolis. That's what we'll say about that. Um, then they meet the Mathemagician, who badmouths his brother, Azaz, uh, and uh, won't give his blessing to them on their journey because Azaz is in approval. Mm-hmm. Um, and Milo goes, he does a smart little trick where uh, basically he uh, proves that the two have agreed to disagree, basically. Um, and so he proves him wrong about like them never agreeing on anything. And the math magician is then like, okay, I guess I have to consent then. They leave Digitopolis and uh, travel into the mountains of ignorance. Um, they meet some demons that are very scary, uh, such as the terrible Trivium who just like creates endless busy work and that's all that he cares about. And that illustration was easily the most frightening one in the book for me. I don't know. It, I didn't find was this that book the faceless scary man? when I was a kid necessarily, but there were some illustrations that bothered me and that was one. Yeah, faceless man. Yeah, a bit of a um, uh, Slenderman mm-hmm, ancestor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I like to say Slenderman because it Slenderman. makes him sound like a gym teacher. <laughs> 
<laughs> Mr. Slenderman. <laughs> um, that came out like Mr. Anderson. <laughs> some Hugo weaving in there. Mr. Slenderman. <laughs> that makes them less scary. Um, they overcome uh, a lot of demonic obstacles, basically. Um, and they're able to reach the castle in the air. Up there, Princess Rhyme and Reason just are, they are there and they're like, hello, and they're really nice. Um, and they agree that they will return to wisdom. Uh, during this time, there's like a whole herd of demons that have been like clawing their way up the mountain, trying to get mm-hmm. to our noble adventurers. Um, and they're, they're escaping them, they're escaping them. And since the demons can't get into the castle, uh, they cut it loose. It starts flying away. Um, and then uh, Milo realizes that Tok can uh, maneuver this this uh, castle vessel because time flies. Time flies. Yeah, so he has that power, um, and the demons are coming after them. But then uh, Lord of the Rings style, the uh, meaning like the, the Rohirrim charging down the hill to Helm's Deep, because the armies of wisdom have arrived uh, and they smash demons and uh, then everything's fine. Um, Rhyme and Reason are back. They're going to make things better. Um, Azaz and the Math Magician kind of like make up and there's this huge uh, big celebration with lots of super fun imagery. Mm-hmm. Um, it reminds me uh, in Ocarina of Time at the end where like all of the different characters are partying. I love the ending. <laughs> Spoilers for Ocarina of Time. <laughs> Spoiler alert for Ocarina of Time. You win. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and, uh, yeah. And then th- that's it. They're like, thank you so much for coming Milo. He says, touching goodbyes to, um, talk and the humbug. Um, and he, uh, gets in his car and then he drives back, um, past the toll booth and, uh, then he's back in his own room. He's only been gone for like an hour even though uh, he thought on his way back, he was like, oh, no, I feel like I've been gone for weeks. Like, people are going to be so worried. Um, I love that there's never a specific mention of his parents or anything. It's just yes. people might notice. <laughs> like, I've, he says the line, I've never been away this long before, which seems to uh, insinuate that he goes <laughs> away on random trips by himself. <laughs> Yeah, I, I which I liked. It mm-hmm. makes him feel autonomous mm-hmm. in a way that, like, as a kid feels yeah. very exciting yeah. and special. Um, and uh, he goes to bed. He wakes up the next morning, and he was like, cool, I'm going to go back. Let's mm-hmm. go adventure, round two. But the toll booth is gone. Uh, there's a note that says, uh, it just says, like, for Milo, who now knows the way, um, and then at the end, there is no signature, mm-hmm. but it, it basically just says like you, the toll booth is needed by other people who need to have these adventures. And now you can have these adventures on your own in uh, your own world. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a, a really beautiful statement about how much you can enjoy life if you uh, know where to look mm-hmm. and how to think about things. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Milo is like bummed, but then 
he is excited by the prospect of having so much to experience in the world where he does live. And that's then the book ends. Yeah. Great book. I've, I've found it to be so lovely um, and not upsetting at all. <laughs> I'm just picturing the Madeline review scale out there, like from not upsetting at all to the Tigger movie. <laughs> all fiction lands somewhere in between. Yeah, I have a mood disorder, so my emotions can be difficult. Um, like very overwhelming and I, I have a hard time processing them sometime. Most recently, um, I watched Minari and spent hours crying. Um, it's an incredible movie, like please check it out. But if you are also someone who's prone to strong emotions, it's, it's a real gut punch. (laughs) Um, and the Phantom Tollbooth isn't a gut punch. Exactly. So that's why I put it in there. Like this did not make me upset. (laughs) I had a good time, good feels. Just like Milo. Yes. Go on your little journey and at the end, the world feels a little bit brighter. Yeah. Instead of, this was the least sad ending, like maybe one of my top least sad endings. Because the ending is about all the new beginnings. Yeah. Reminds me of Diana Wynne-Jones' Hell's Moving Castle, Mm -hmm. which even though it's one of my most favorite stories in existence also doesn't make me sad at the end of the book because there is so much like life and momentum and mm-hmm. excitement about what they're going to do next. Yeah. Which, which we may or may not be privy to, but that feels okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lovely summary. Thank you. I used the help of the Wikipedia summary. That's fine. Yes. Thank you. Wikipedia summary. Old and new impressions. As we mentioned, <laughs> Um, I have not read this book before, but now I've read it. Part of the reason I didn't read this as a child, um, one, I was never assigned it in school. I think that it's probably frequently or was frequently assigned in schools. I can't imagine why it wouldn't still be still incredibly valuable. And it it doesn't like it's not uh, real world connected enough to seem aged at all, you know, I thought it was a book like <laughs> I always thought it was some sort of like horrifying dystopia book. I thought it, I thought it was in the vein of a clockwork for children. <laughs> I didn't know that it was for children. Oh, oh. I just always maybe it was near a clockwork orange on your shelf or something. I didn't <laughs> I didn't read that book until I was in my teens, yeah. but I knew that it was like an intense adult book. Mm. Um, and maybe I, the phrase clockwork and toll booth. Yeah, I don't know. There was yeah, some connection there. No, definitely. Um, and so then when, and for all the wordplay of this book, it's ironic that the title <laughs> scared you off. Yeah. Uh, and when you brought it up as uh, a book we should do, then I started looking into it and I was like, Oh, this is like, this is like an Alice in Wonderland type book, not a Clockwork Orange type book. No, shares very little DNA with Clockwork Orange. Yeah. Um, and I really, I appreciate so much the framing and the uh, cohesiveness of uh, all of these representations of the human mind. Uh, I just found it so relatable yeah. while being so fantastical. I've been working really hard on trying to 
um, learn my own mind because, you know, aforementioned emotional issues <laughs> and uh, the whole concept of mindfulness. It, like, I feel like anyone who's trying to develop or, um, work on, uh, you know, just improve their mindfulness habits in their own life. You should read this book, reread it, read it for the first time, uh, because it's a really positive and helpful just reminder and exploration of all uh, the different things that you can experience in a positive way mm-hmm. just by the way that you're framing things in your own mind. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the number one thing I kept thinking as I was reading and there are lots of different instances of it. Um, it's a great takeaway. So yeah, I've, I enjoyed the heck out of this book. Nice. Yeah. It was not a scary dystopia book. It really isn't. <laughs> Far from it. I mean, arguably the book does take place in, in some dystopia. sort of dystopia. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> we'll talk more about that a little bit. Um, so for me, it's hard to, this is one that's hard for me to even look at through fresh eyes because it's just so baked into my brain. Um, but I hadn't read it now for probably, I mean, 15 years at least. Okay. But you read it a lot when you were younger. I read it a lot when I was young. Um, so I wasn't assigned this in school, um, but I had, uh, a tough time in grade school and third grade was the hardest. Um, and my teacher would often give me books to read that he thought that I would like. Um, and I, I had the same teacher third and fourth grade cause he like moved, you know, they oh, move Mr. around, Harris? they move up and down. Yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> I sound like a Dr. Seuss poem. <laughs> Teachers move around, they move up and down. <laughs> Um, but Was yeah, it? so I knew him well. Mr. Harris? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, I also have positive memories of him because like. Did we, he move to your grade then? No, <laughs> no. I think that we were buddies because the, the age gap was perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, when they do like older, younger buddies. Yeah. And yeah. I have a memory of, um, us being in your classroom, Mr. Harris's classroom mm-hmm. and like, you know, doing fun stuff, coloring or whatever. And Mr. Yes. Harris was just like around making fun jokes. Yeah, he was great. Yeah, and and he, by buddies, we mean the pairing of an older student with a younger student yeah. to foster a sort of like helpful mentorship type relationship. Yeah. Grace was my favorite buddy um, because I couldn't really connect with the other ones because they were like <laughs> three to four years older than me and strangers versus I don't know why we were allowed to be buddies uh probably Mr. Harris was down with it you know yeah (laughs) (laughs) they're a different flavor yeah exactly the other kids so yeah it's a fun memory yeah so he would often give me books and he gave me Phantom Tollbooth um and I was immediately obsessed with it. <laughs> I was really ready for Phantom Tollbooth because it's so similar to the Oz books in terms of totally. the plot structure. Yeah. And I devoured the Oz books. I read them over and over and over again. And there's just so much of them. <laughs> so endless adventures. But then there was the added piece of all the goofy, fun, 
a wordplay. Yeah. Um, so you get like these riddles, you get these incredible illustrations, and you get adventure after adventure, like wacky, weird characters popping in and out and challenging you. And it has the similarity to Alice's Adventures in Wonderland as well. Mm-hmm. Um, just like every every little thing that would light up my the pleasure centers of my kid brain yeah um and yeah i was i was in deep i was i was obsessed i thought it was like the end all of like intellectual humor like i thought it was so clever and smart and amazing and it is in a lot of ways but it's funny when you're a kid and you discover something and you're like well this is it like the height of satire I, I can't go past this. Nothing else will surpass this in, my, in you know, all of human recorded history. And um, the funny thing is, like, this book is so good that it, it definitely is. has, like, has a place in, mm-hmm. uh, you know, some of the greatest satire that exists. Mm-hmm. And its accessibility is something else really incredible about it, that you can read it both as a small child yeah. And as an adult and both times think like, wow, this is brilliant. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, so rereading it as an adult, I definitely, I'm, I'm very much like still living in that place of my adoration for it. Um, <laughs> I find like, like I mentioned when, uh, talk hops in the car or that there are so many different little funny lines that also remind me of Terry Pratchett or I should say vice versa Terry Pratchett reminds me of Dorian Jester because his work came far later but um just so much wonderful crossover and the type of yeah I just keep saying goofy but like goofy clever fantasy is a realm that I love to occupy yeah a little bit um what do you call them twisted fairy tales a fractured fairy tale. yeah 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 mm-hmm. yeah um and I also think that so I, I read that Norton Jester wanted to make a children's book that was not specifically difficult. He wasn't setting out to do that, but he didn't want to make it totally accessible necessarily. And he said that at the time there was such an emphasis on children's books being like very straightforward and easy to consume and like instructional in this Mm -hmm. very specific way. Um, And he wanted to make something that wasn't trying to dumb itself to any particular level, but instead would give readers of a, you know, young readers of a wide range of ages an opportunity to think differently, like experience new words. He said a lot of publishers weren't interested because it had a lot more complicated like words and concepts. Um, And I think some of the, it has some of that purposely tricky logic where Mm -hmm. it's difficult to understand because it's being broken down in such a granular way, um, which also occurs a lot in Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Um, And then it's very Pratchett-esque too, mm -hmm. or yeah. Pratchett, it's Tollbooth-esque. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. And because there are these intangible concepts that are being given tangible bodies mm-hmm. of some kind, yeah. um, whether it's a 
phrase or like a speech before dinner that becomes the dinner that you eat or a boy who exists as 0.58 because that's the average the average family has 2.58 children so he's the 0.58 child yeah um which is like there's so much educational material in this book that doesn't feel like you're reading an educational book, like the the average children thing, which does totally. an amazing job of explaining what averages are, which yeah. I had such a hard time with when I was a kid. Yeah. Like I didn't understand averages. And, and that is genuinely what makes learning feel fun. Yeah. It, it creates this place in which you actually want to explore these concepts. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel dry and inaccessible. Mm-hmm. Um, and and at the same time, it's a satirical comment on how silly a lot of the ways we approach our words and numbers are. <laughs> like the fact that mm-hmm. we use that figure so regularly in terms of, yeah, what how many children are in an average American family or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and so many other things throughout the book too, like half-baked truths that they eat as cakes yeah. at the one of which is the earth is flat which at the time he said something the narrator says or the king says something like yeah not that many people believe that at this point and which is perhaps like, oh boy one of the only ways in which this book hasn't aged well very unfortunately nope. flat earthers are out there yeah. in mass um even you know this is pretty in line with the reason in this book, actually, because it's quite comical that the person who invented the modern flat earther movement, like mm-hmm. it was a joke Facebook group between him and his friends. And then it caught on. <laughs> um, like I mentioned, Alex Bing really hit me a lot. or Alec Bing really hit me a lot harder on reread um, than the first time. Yeah, he was funny. Um, one thing that was... A little tough is there are very few female characters and they're either they're all imprisoned. Like the witch is in the dungeon That's and true. the princesses are in the castle. In the air. Do you think that that is some kind of commentary like princess bride type? Yeah, I wondered about that yeah. too. Um, but but yeah, I, I wish I wish there were more female characters. Even the uh, you know different like non-human characters right, all like, seem to be male. There's no reason not to make them female or mm. just you know not explicitly male even. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like there, it would have been really easy to play around with gender as well in this book. Totally, because it that's is, another concept right. that we've created. Exactly. Yeah, it would be important and interesting to pick apart in the same way that Jester does with words, language, and with mathematics. Yeah, but I'm thinking like... Way more complex, though. Right, (laughs) and if he was already having trouble (laughs) getting this published, then like if he had put a bunch of like deconstruction of gender norms in there, that like... No, I know. (laughs) I'm fully aware that we're asking for a lot, but how cool would that have been, Yeah, no, I I like discussing it. I was just following Mm -hmm. that down and being like, oh, of course he was never going to do that. No. Yeah. And then the other piece that um, that I got stuck on was the colonialism mm. of the creation of the Kingdom of Wisdom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the prince just came. Yeah, when we're told the story about the it, it's like the prince showed up, <laughs> but his goal was, you know, all things good and right. And it's like, okay, good and right by whose book? And then he 
slowly just drives all of the demons that are living in that land. And it's like, okay, we're already putting, you know, a value judgment on them because they're referred to as demons. And like, we do meet some of them and they're interested in mostly just in like stopping productive movement Mm -hmm. of some kind but like it's definitely a bit of a like quote-unquote savages analog for sure yeah yeah which is problematic yes that is that is what i that is what i was going to Mm -hmm. um and like throughout that story i was like okay and there's this line where it's like well he decided he was going to expand further to take the land that was rightfully his yeah like rightfully his yours he showed up in a boat like a year ago Yeah, so that bothered me a little bit too, and it made me look at the demons in a through a different lens. As Good point. Well. <laughs> and hey, if if you read this book in the classroom now, what a, what a great uh, point to yeah. stop and be like, let's have a discussion about yeah. colonialism and uh, its many genocides. <laughs> I know, and especially because I found it very disturbing that in the the story of the history of the kingdom mm-hmm. um it was said that the, you know is as and the math magicians <laughs> <laughs> i just now i can't say his name uh, what is his real name but like he wasn't named the math magician when he was born <laughs> Do you remember that little tiny handheld uh, digital game we had with the wizard? And I think he might have been called like a mathemagician. And me and Patrick played it a lot. And you would like solve math problems. And then he at the end of it, he would be like, you found a treasure. And then like a little blob <laughs> would come on the screen and go like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's defended by a brain drainer. <laughs> And then you would have to do like a a harder exercise to get the yeah, treasure. Yes, that's I what the do. mathematician made me think oh about. Oh my god, amazing! Yeah. Um, brain drainer. Wow. <laughs> yeah, the brain drainers are out there. They really are. Yeah. Um. Anyway, yeah, their dad went on campaigns from spring to fall every year to like defend and expand the kingdom, and it's like. Not great, Bob. So you're just killing Not great. <laughs> the inhabitants of the surrounding land yeah. half of every year. Yeah. Concerned yeah. about that. Yeah. Um, and I know that that's just like kind of a throwaway story to establish. Well, to do, it's a story to do some world building to help us understand why the demons live in such close proximity. Because it mm-hmm. seems like they'd be happier elsewhere too. But they had all this this was their home. Like yeah. it's just important to think critically about these things. Which is also now. And like you said, have conversations about them with young readers. It, a modern analog is also like gentrification and mm-hmm. the removal of especially lower income people, mm-hmm. which because of the world we live in and especially in America is, is usually divided along racial lines. Um, And then it, you know, then the people who you've pushed into a smaller and smaller area are having a bad time. Mm -hmm. So of course they're going to be less happy, going to lead less fulfilling lives. Resources will be more scarce. So, you know, with the demons like being so scary, like, you know, of course you push them into this tiny little area, man. They don't have enough space. 
Okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's old and new impressions, I guess. Yeah. I did. So it was interesting to learn a bit more about the creation of this book because, and now we'll talk about the art, which I think is a super, super important component. Um, Norton Juster was given a grant by the Ford Foundation to write a book about cities, a children's book about cities. He, at the time, was working as an architect or trying to work as an architect in New York, um, but was also a writer. Okay. He got this grant, and the goal of it was to get, like, kids more invested in, like, taking care of their cities and, like, living there instead of like infrastructure totally and i think at the time there was a big like suburban boom um i mean this was yeah late 50s Um, was happening yeah so uh, they were trying to um teach kids about yeah the importance of urban infrastructure Mm -hmm. um but he was really struggling with it and ultimately couldn't do it. Yeah, um, I mean that's that sounds like a pretty boring concept to yeah. start from. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not not the best. Um, and instead, he started thinking about this little boy um, who he said in an NPR interview from ten years ago that we'll link on our website, DragonBabiesPodcast.com, that when he was a kid, he felt like Milo. He felt very just like left alone to his own devices, but like very confused and puzzled by these different, the greater things in the world and like concepts that he didn't fully understand. Um, So he created this perfect journey and intellectual awakening for that same little boy today. Um, But he was still struggling with it. He, lived in a house in Brooklyn with Jules Pfeiffer on the floor under him. Like he was his tenant and the two of them were good friends too. One of the many stories about the conception of the uh, art is that Jules Pfeiffer heard him like pacing around all night up above him and was like calm down what's happening um and he showed him what he had of the book so far and then like without really being asked at first Jules was like I just really want to create some illustrations yeah yeah and started putting some of these bizarre characters and concepts you know into pictures to paper um how organic Yeah. And I think you really feel the push and pull. And they also said that it became a little bit of a game in terms of like trying to match each of their mental images to some kind of in between um, for the illustrations. And also apparently, so there's an, there's an, a book called the annotated phantom toll booth that the two, where the two of them put like a lot of, you know, tidbits and Easter eggs um, Mm -hmm. in and talked about it more. And uh, I think something from that said that um, after they were arguing about, I think the illustration for the weatherman, (laughs) um, Jules Pfeiffer made him look like Norton Jester. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I love And I love the weatherman illustration. It's one of my favorite pictures. He's so joyful. He's like skipping along with one foot high in the air. He's releasing a balloon (laughs) into the sky and he looks so mischievous and he has a little toga on. It's just so funny. He looks so jovial and we'll put some of our favorite illustrations up on our website as well um but yeah I I love thinking about that and there was a um at the time like kind of radical publisher at Random House who was really interested in bringing 
more interesting, complex children's books to life. Um, And he is the one who kind of became a champion for the book and got it published. Cool. I wanted to talk through some of Norton Jester's inspirations for some of the characters and concepts in the book. Um, He did have synesthesia as a child, which I think is very telling in terms of the way a lot of the concepts are uh, presented. Oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. Yeah, (laughs) definitely. What a cool way of like helping other people experience something like that. I know, I know. It's, and this, I think as someone who doesn't have synesthesia, it's difficult to imagine right. what it's like. Yeah, and this, it's, I think this book helps me mm-hmm. <laughs> with that. It's probably, it feels like trying to imagine um, colorblindness mm-hmm. from either side, mm-hmm. you know? Totally. Um, yeah. And it, I think too, this book, one of the most amazing things about it is that it really should be tedious. Right. Like, yeah. It shouldn't be fun. <laughs> yet it's, so wonderful to experience. Yeah. I uh, just absolutely masterful. Um, they also included the beautiful map, the end papers, because Jester loved Wind in the Willows and was like, we have to have a big map at the front. The map and Pfeiffer incredible. didn't want to make one, and uh, Norton Jester like basically forced him to. Okay. Um, Interesting. Especially, I think, because it's so vague, like where they go at different points. Right. So it's also really fun to look at the map after you finish it. I'll never get tired of fantasy maps. Love imaginary More and more maps. and more, please. Yeah. <laughs> I made my own sort of, not imaginary map, but I made my own map for my mother-in-law, Renee Hansen. Shout out, Renee. Yeah. Um, depicting the watersheds in Minnesota. Um, and that was really interesting because we were basically like researching and then collating so many different maps made yeah, by you so made many like different groups. An original map, yeah, and it, it's so it's so fun, bringing, yeah, bringing them to life. So more map making ahead. Maps. <laughs> um, also, we've already mentioned Alice's Adventures in Wonderland a few times, but Norton Jester actually hadn't read it when he wrote this, and cool. I think that makes sense because both of the authors it's very different. Had different agendas, definitely. And it's this experience of when a young child is put into a very goofy world that is governed nonetheless by some form of logic Mm -hmm. and then just kind of spinning out what happens from there. I I also related to this. um, Jester created the terrible trivium because that was his depiction of his own procrastination um and it was specifically so hard yeah i knew exactly what he was talking about definitely and as the terrible trivium is saying like yeah just stay with me and do this and the hours will pass and pass and pass and pass um as and then milo figures out it'll take them like 800 years to complete the task that he's up and yeah we i mean we all have a problem with procrastination at one point or another but i think also when you have depression Mm. it manifests in a very toxic way yeah. um, and they become so interwoven. They, they really feed off of each oh, other. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a self-perpetuating cycle, baby. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I definitely related to that. And he also said that it yeah, specifically was about the fact that he was avoiding his grant project. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I also really enjoyed that. Yeah. Um, 
And uh, yeah, and then I also just wanted to mention that Diana Wynne Jones loves this book and said at one point that her childhood copy of it had just totally fallen apart because oh. she read it so many times. <gasps> Diana Wynne Jones. DWJ. <laughs> so let's talk about the fantasy elements of the book as well as the age range let's talk about the pieces that make it you know appropriate for this podcast (laughs) um magic systems so this book is so oz like as i as i mentioned before um where everything can be anything yeah like it ebbs and flows in terms of what's possible what's feasible things come and and go (laughs) yep and a lot of characters very dreamlike but at the same time they're very set in their journey but some areas are intended to be dreamlike like there are pieces that change based on decisions that they make in terms of landscape even like when the paths to digitopolis change because they're given the math problem of which path is going to take the longest but they're all the same Mm -hmm. so it just becomes one path yeah (laughs) um and whatever creature is with them oh that's the dodecahedron right who's helping them with the paths i think so yeah Whatever his creature is with, with all the different faces. Point, uh, when yeah. they say, well, aren't they all the right path? And he's like, they're all the wrong path. <laughs> <laughs> There's also a great, like that comes up a few times, that concept of like, if everything is bad, then technically everything is also good. You know, you right. need to have a balance. Yeah. Otherwise, everything loses all meaning. Which, you know, yeah. It's one way to approach life. I've, I get that. Mm-hmm. I live in a realm of uh, polar opposites. Not that I'm saying that everything can't be bad in someone's life, but, you know, conceptually. Yes. It's important yeah, to understand. I understand what you're saying. Um, yeah. So so it's uh, there isn't, you know, one set magic system. There's the power of words and the power of numbers, but then also other things like the power of sound. Sound is a big piece of this book um, that you know doesn't necessarily have its own like monarch <laughs> that is governing things there's the sound keeper yeah um who is a tortured woman <laughs> um the other female character I guess, yes who's like very sad uh but but has her own arc as well mm-hmm. um and that's probably the scariest part of the book in some ways where there are people trapped in this soundless valley um and sending sad telegrams like the concert is a huge success. When can we expect the music? <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. What's my conclusion here? It's free flowing. Yeah. And it all, it all is magical in its, um, mm-hmm. in, in the way that it shifts form so mm-hmm. freely from mm-hmm. idea to idea. Um, and the way that all of these characters kind of have their own magic that yeah. plays with the world's magic. Yeah, and they keep introducing, you know, new shades of that build off of everything we've found so far, mm-hmm. which, you know, at first Milo's like super confused all the time and feeling very puzzled, but then it starts becoming more of a a confidence in the experience of being puzzled, of gaining knowledge, like of and there's a beautiful speech by Rhyme and Reason when they're talking to Milo before they leave the castle in the air. Um, castle in the sky. I always struggle with that with the Miyazaki <laughs> movie. Um, when they say that, you know, right now you feel like you don't understand any of the things that you're learning. So you're like, why is this useful? Mm-hmm. Like, what could this mean right now? But the 
important piece is that someday all of that is going to have colored your own life experience and your wisdom and each little piece is going to be important in its own way. Yeah, it's really a lesson on the eternal value of knowledge. Yeah. Yeah, and yes. the value of uh, perpetually gaining new knowledge and new insight and Without new necessarily approaching it like, I have to follow this path, like complete this degree or read this book because right. it's going to serve me in this career or, or this task, but instead like really accepting having these like open borders mentally and just accepting everything mm -hmm. coming in yeah. and playing its own part. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's the real magic of the book. Five stars. Um, <laughs> and in terms of age range, so it's definitely... It's definitely written for kids, and I do. I, I saw that through a series of edits, um, it was made to feel more universal. Like I mentioned, um, Milo's age was taken out so that he could be, yeah, an every every kid, um, and no parents, like no mention of mm. his life prior to the Phantom Toll Booth, no description of how the toll booth was delivered. Yeah, um, Just why? Is. Yeah. Who was responsible? I love the smudged signature on the note that's yeah, like, I don't even know who <laughs> said it. Yeah. It's me. Yeah. Nobody. <laughs> um, which, yeah, when I was a kid, felt like a puzzle that I could figure out. But uh, I realize now that it, that's not what that's not Jester the is doing. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, and, and at the same time, you can really, you can read it again and again and again and gain new pieces each time. And that's one reason I loved it so much as a kid because I started it from a pretty young age. Mm. Um, like I think I was probably nine when I first read it. Mm -hmm. um, so even, you know, from nine to 12 or so, like continuing to reread this book and understanding new pieces each time and like learning what irony is. Yeah. <laughs> like these different concepts that a lot of other you know, children's and middle grade fiction just aren't really offering in the same right, way. Would not tackle. Um, we're at least harder to find. Um, yeah. And uh, so, you know, in conclusion, <laughs> book for everyone. Yeah. I mean, I've already gushed endlessly about how valuable it is to me as an adult. So yeah, I'm I, 30. <laughs> and, and I did. I loved reading it again and I was glad actually that I hadn't picked it up for so long because it was such a delight to just like slip back and get back into that little car and yeah. head off down the highway the little car is so funny too when I was a kid I was so mad <laughs> so I was like I don't have a little car <laughs> yeah we never I don't think we ever had no we had friends and like acquaintances who had the that like there were some Barbie neighbors Jeep. who had the little yeah like the pink. car that you can actually get inside oh if you were like six i mean like they were quite small yeah they were very little but like i remember we didn't own much from fao schwartz but we would always get the catalog mm -hmm. and go through it and then i always remember looking at like the freaking like bmw miniature car for like 10 oh my grand God. <laughs> the, that freaking fao schwartz catalog was like capitalism for kids yeah get into it yeah and uh, yeah we we would um just like drool over the entire thing mm -hmm. the christmas catalog would come once a year yeah they also had so many of those beautiful Madame Alexander dolls. Do you remember those? Never owned one, but they were so pretty. Oh, 
Oh yeah, but they were display only. Yeah, totally. That's but why we every, didn't know that. Every catalog would have the like centerfold of just I remember. gorgeous layouts yeah. of like Wizard of Oz, Madame Alexander dolls, right. like um, like Winter Queen with like fake fur and hats the, the muff and like the with muff. Her, her little porcelain <laughs> yeah. hands gently folded into it. Oh my God. Yeah, I remember that. I mean, no doll could ever be as good as our appreciation for the pictures <laughs> of the dolls in that catalog. And, they, you know, that's that goes right back I, to I Phantom like, Toldo, the journey of the mind. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the most powerful thing. And sometimes we would cut out pictures mm-hmm. um, and make our own paper dolls mm-hmm. out of like the really cool dolls. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We are officially skipping animals, just like animals in this book, because I don't really feel comfortable calling anyone an animal because they all, all have sentient. the power of speech. Yeah, <laughs> and, so like, um, I don't know where to put that line. Yeah, and their own important like little logics that yeah. they're carrying out throughout the book. So skipping that. Yeah. And that takes us right to Britain food. This is a, a lush, a lavish pretend food feast. And like... There are varying degrees of the fictionality of the foods that we encounter. And I love that this food, there's there's no way I can access this or replicate it. I'm never going to be able to speak a wish phrase and have the meal brought to me by a waiter. Or eat a letter. Or eat a letter. <laughs> I know. Or eat a concept. Yep. Um, eat, eat a poorly thought out speech that appears in front of me and looks horrible. <laughs> um, but, but I love, love reading about it. Um, so when Milo is at the King's Feast in Dictionopolis, he is told that as the special guest, he needs to name the menu. Um, and he, he says, well, Remembering that his mother had always told him to eat lightly when he was a guest. Why don't we have a light meal? A light meal it shall be. And then platters of sunbeams <laughs> come out. And everyone's like, well, that was pretty, but like, I'm hungry. Not a great food. So still not figuring it out. Then Milo says, I think we ought to have a square meal of... But he doesn't quite get there. And then platters of squares of all sizes so and squares. colors come out. The picture for this is great. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> it's just a very squares. snooty waiter holding a platter of steaming squares. It looks like uh, American cheese singles. This is one of the yeah one of the most incredible things about these illustrations is that they are very specific and yet they still very evocative like they still leave room for your own imagination yeah and, um, they're just oh, they're just so good um, but then everyone just goes around and says their own little speech so that they can get whatever food they want finally That's a good call. Um, other people get delicious feast roast turkey mashed potatoes vanilla ice cream for the humbug hamburgers corn on the cob and chocolate pudding p-u-d-d-i-n-g for the spelling bee frankfurter's sour pickles and strawberry jam for officer shrift which is a little more eccentric but sounds good um and the king has like a very luxurious french meal um but milo's meal is i would like to take this opportunity to say that in all the <laughs> so it's not great <laughs> Uh, But thankfully, he gets some half-baked truths for dessert, which we've already discussed. (laughs) Um, Large serving carts carrying uh, cakes with icing and nuts that say things like, the earth is flat, the moon is made of green cheese, it never rains, but it pours, (laughs) night air is bad air. I love that we go from, like... 
dumb aphorisms to the earth is flat. Yeah. <laughs> Which used to feel sillier as a concept. Everything happens for the best is the one that Milo folds up and takes with him for the road too, which is not a bad half-baked truth. <laughs> one, one that has a lot of power to shape your own reality. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I'm just adding this now because I forgot to say it earlier, but one of my quotes that I marked as a kid, we haven't talked about my childhood quote book for a while. <laughs> Which I still have. And this one's definitely in it. Um, it's when Alec and our crew are talking and he's just being absolutely ridiculous and proposing these different situations that are, you know, there, there's no comparison to our reality from them. But he's just like, what about this thing that could exist? Which also reminds me of if my mother were, what is it? If my mother were a bicycle... Do you know what I'm talking about? It is frequently used in extremely bad faith yes. in our politics. Yes. Which is exactly what you want from your, you know, bodies of governance. Just complete bad faith and yeah. nonsensicalness. Yes. It's the, if my mother had wheels, she would have been a bike argument. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but what Alex says is, for instance, if Christmas trees were people and people were Christmas trees, we'd all be chopped down, put up in the living room and covered with tinsel while the trees opened our presents. <laughs> Milo is like, well, what does that have to do with it? <laughs> Nothing at all, but it's an interesting possibility, don't you think? <laughs> so technically this isn't food, but it's for when you're hungry for sound. And this is when the sound keeper gives Milo a small brown package neatly wrapped and tied with string. Now remember, they're not for eating, but for listening, because you'll often be hungry for sounds as well as food. Here are street noises at night, train whistles a long way off, dry leaves burning, busy department stores, crunching toast, creaking bed springs, and of course, all kinds of laughter. And this makes me think of a few days ago when I was on a walk and there was a band having a practice in like a garage. Um, and I miss live music so much. <laughs> I When I felt the bass and the drums, I got like really overwhelmed because it's been so long. <laughs> it's yeah. been a really long time. Um, so I'm hungry for sound as well. And I'm... Uh extremely privileged to be living in a house with my partner and my brother for the first time since I moved out of my parents' house. Um, and uh, a sound that, or sounds that I've been enjoying so much are the birds. The The previous owners and renters have planted an incredible variety of native plant life in the yard. It's a small yard, but it wraps around and there's tons of birds like I can hear all the different kinds um my jays I'm really into my scrub jays and my sellers jays and uh a couple of weeks ago a bald eagle was just sitting on the yeah, cross at the church cool. next door and we could hear its cries because the crows were like trying to <laughs> swoop it and make it go away and the bald mm -hmm. eagle was just sitting there kind of going like at them. It was I, really cool. I love your sort of unofficial bird watch text thread <laughs> that you have going with us now so next up, we have some substitution stew, which makes you hungrier and hungrier the more it's a real bummer. you eat. Um, and the humbug has 23 portions and then almost <laughs> dies because <laughs> he's so hungry. Yeah, I love like it describing his panic 
when he realizes what he's done. Yeah, the only description for what it's actually like is an immense cauldron which bubbled and sizzled and sent great clouds of savory steam spiraling slowly to the ceiling. A sweet yet pungent aroma hung in the air and drifted easily from one anxious nose to the other. So I don't, yeah, nothing about what the flavor actually is. Just like hot, (laughs) wet, savory, (laughs) Savory, but also sweet, pungent. Um, Anyway, substitution stew is terrifying. Um, And the uh, mathemagician explains that they have meals when they're full and eat until they're hungry. That way, when you don't have anything at all, you have more than enough. It's a very economical system, (laughs) um, which works here, but not in our reality unfortunately um and then they later have uh, another like dangerous form of food at the final feast that's something like a it's like a biscuit that's not enough <laughs> um yeah division dumplings show up Which later as well yeah. because no matter how many you eat when you finish you have more on your plate than when you start um, a crazy thing about Jules Pfeiffer's illustrations is that he said that he was nervous about illustrating the book because he didn't feel like he could do it justice um, oh. for the actual published version. Because, you know, at first he felt like he was just doing it kind of for fun. Um, but he was already a very established and Incredible awarded artist. cartoonist yeah. and illustrator. And now, I mean, he has a Pulitzer Prize and stuff like he's. Very, very uh, lauded, rightfully so. Um, But yeah, some of this art is just so incredible. Again, it will be on our website. (laughs) Um, And the the final pretend food is, yeah, the the last feast after the kingdom is reunited and rhyme and reason are returned. I wish we could do that here. Bring back rhyme and reason, please. Where are they um, gone? But were and, they ever here? <laughs> and the king orders a special supply of delicious words in all flavors, and for those who liked exotic foods, in all languages too. And I love the thought of a word in a different language tasting different mm-hmm. than in English. Which I definitely like. I I always say that um, Russian feels like. Uh, talking with the taste of chocolate in your mouth (laughs) (laughs) that's what it makes me think of that's great yeah let's select and rate our badass ladies on the badass lady meter my badass lady is the witch (laughs) i love the witch faintly macabre yeah faintly macabre um and uh i rate her the ability to press a button and walk out of prison herself. I know. <sighs> yeah. I, I, at first I was anxious when the cop who's also a judge and a jailer I know, I showed was like, up. Oh, like, this is bad. Ooh. But then I felt like it was a commentary on the prison system and <laughs> the justice system in our country. Um, and I loved that they could just choose to choose to leave but the witch was like she was still thinking things through so yeah, she felt comfortable she, kind of staying down there right she said like i'll i'll be a part of things when rhyme and reason have returned yeah which, you know i understand that. i get it yeah. <laughs> sounds sounds about right sounds tempting um yeah we already mentioned you know there aren't a ton of female characters in the book um i i did 
I related to the sound keeper. I did mm. like her. She's sitting and having like, she's enjoying her different curated silences mm. when they come in. Um, but she's also stressful and steals sound from everyone. Yeah. Um, and it's like a sound dictator. So I'm not going to pick her. <laughs> um, I, I will pick rhyme and reason, even though they don't get to do very much. And I felt for them because it was like, Oh, your job is just to keep the men from fighting. Um, But we're also living in a world in which like different characters are literally different concepts. So they are rhyme and reason. (laughs) So it's not like I need to question their agency and like whether they're choosing to do that. I mean, that's literally their fabric of being. The personifications. But, you know, sometimes maybe like when every personality test you take says that you're like the mediator and the giver and you don't want to be that person, it gets annoying. I speak it's from personal experience. Taxing. It's uh, it's exhausting. <sighs> yes. Part of the reason that I stopped being an attorney. <laughs> because of Myers-Briggs. Oh, well, I mean, yeah. I, I'm just kidding. Well, I meant like because it's it's freaking exhausting being the trying to be the voice of reason when the structures that oh, you're yeah. working with have none. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so my rating for Rhyme and Reason is uh, not a castle in the sky, but a moving castle. So they're not trapped away up in the clouds. They can go wherever they want, provide some rhyme and reason, spread it throughout the land as they see fit in a healthy way, not a colonialist (laughs) way. (laughs) And yeah, rhyme and reason moving castle. That's my rating. All right. So that's it for our Phantom Tollbooth episode. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Um, And we do this in... uh, Uh, appreciative memory of Norton Jester. So thank you for writing this incredible book. We uh, are accessible on the internet. We will put up some illustrations on our Instagram and Twitter and website. Instagram is Dragon Babies Podcast. Twitter is Dragon Babies Pod. And our website is DragonBabiesPodcast.com. Check it out. Yeah. The next book that we are going to cover um, is no surprise, a Diana Wynne Jones book. <laughs> um, our last one was in October. <laughs> Whatever. We, we, we covered what, what we want when we want. DWJ, baby. And no, no one's complaining about all our Diana Wynne Jones books. <laughs> We're going to read The House of Many Ways. We're going to finish a series for the first time in podcast coverage history, I think. Um, and yeah, this is a continuation of Howl's Moving Castle and Castle in the Air. I believe it's just the three books, unless I'm goofing. Um, the power of research is, you know, spotty here at Dragon Babies. <laughs> um, so join us. We'll be back in with that in a few weeks. Thank you all so much for listening. We appreciate each and every one of you. Yeah, we appreciate you so much. I'm Grace. And I'm Madeline. Until next time. Goodbye.